every shot at the U.S. Mid-Am in 2017 had to have been the most important shot of my life because it changed my life. But the coolest shot or coolest putt it was was the last hole on Friday at Shinnecock where I was able to make a 25-footer to guarantee myself to make the cut. And this is when I was playing pretty poorly in the morning. I was able to play the last few holes pretty well, other than 17, where I put myself in a bad spot by making a horrible bogey. But to birdie 18 and, and guarantee myself to make the cut, and obviously it was Father's Day, and my dad was caddying for me. So you don't think about it in the moment, but now looking back, that was definitely the coolest shot. In 1744, the first golf club with a definite proof of origin was the Company of Gentlemen Golfers Who Played of Leith, now called the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers Who Play at Muirfield. It was that year when several gentlemen of honour, skillful in the ancient and healthful exercise of the golf, petitioned the Edinburgh City Council to donate a silver club for their annual competition on the Leith Links. The winner of the competition was declared Captain of the Golf for the year, and a silver ball with the date and the captain's name inscribed upon it was attached to the Silver Club. Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. Now, Colin, I'm really excited to be on this inaugural Silver Club podcast with you. And for us to co-host this thing really is exciting this year. And I'm looking forward to being with you throughout the year. Great, Steve. Delighted to do this, man. This is going to be fun. We're going to have an absolute blast as we go through the year and connecting people with the amateur game and and you know we we have our first guest and before we get to our first guest today with matt parziali you know who is the 2017 mid-amateur champ who's got some very interesting news to share i have to i have to admit uh you know just wanted to let's let's just quickly discuss and explain to our listeners how the name the silver club golfing society came about well, I like it. I mean, we obviously had that nice little intro with sort of uh, proper East Lothian, East of Scotland accent by our boy Simon. Uh, that's where the game began almost immediately. You know, we're, not long after it was invented, the Scots didn't invent it so that they could you know, be away from their wives. They did it for competition. See who is instantly better. That's what it was. Yeah, and this, play, this took place back in 1744. The Honorable Company, uh, which is now the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers, who plays at Muirfield. Uh, back then, they came out of Leith, Scotland. Uh, yeah, they were, the it, they were the gentlemen golfers of Leith. <laughs> always gentlemen, always gentlemen. Yeah. And, and, you know, how this ties. And, and what, I think the cool thing that they did, the, the champion golfer of the year... They, the, the, who won the, the, the silver club, they won the silver club with, they put their name inscribed on a golf ball and they attach it to the silver club. And over the course of time, they had all these golf balls attached to this cool club and it created a cool story. What I, what I think is also really cool is that um, early on, it was the only competition of the year. You were champion golfer of the year because that was the only competition of the year. I kind of like now that there's, there's four majors, there's tours all around the world, amateur professional, there's a thousand so-called championships. But imagine a time when the game was so young and small that there was essentially one prize a year and you were like the unified champion golfer of the year, undisputed. That's 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 pretty cool. So so how did you get so involved with the amateur game and what what enthralls you about competitive amateur golf? Talk about uh, tell our listeners a little about, you know, the history of uh, your connection to the amateur game. Well, I just uh, anyone who's played with me in the last few years knows that if we're talking about my competitive golf game, we have to talk about it like it's an obituary. But uh, <laughs> an obituary, huh? <laughs> the um, I was very lucky. Uh, you know, grew up in a town with nine hole par three course, and as a result, Fairfield, Connecticut has has always had a very uh, high junior golf participation rate. And uh, I was very grateful to work in the bag room and caddy at a couple of the private clubs in town, and and uh, and Fairfield High had a great team. We had a uh, in the four years I was in high school, 
the varsity team. I wasn't on it for four years, but they finished. They won two state championships and finished runner-up in the other two. I was part of the junior and senior year ones. But um, when JJ Henry, who eventually played on the PGA Tour, still played on the PGA Tour twenty years on, wasn't even the, the number one player for a for a, for a portion of his high school team. He tells you how good they were. Yeah, pretty good. Um, but I always, I always loved, I always loved competing. I loved, uh, I was always loved the opportunity to play any any tournaments in the summer. I didn't play many growing up as a kid, but when they did, I they were they were they were like majors to me. They were they were playing in the Bork when I was 15 years old. Um, was like a highlight of the year, and then eventually um, was briefly good enough and and as a junior to play to get recruited to play golf in college, and then and then. Played at Yale and during during the summers, like the rest of us, Steve didn't quite, you know, my my dreams my dreams of, of being a great player never materialized, but they never diminished the fact that I've always loved the game. And um, years later, I wrote a history of the U.S. Amateur, which 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 was fascinating to cover. Um, that, that that was very cool. I I read uh, a lot of that. How many people did you? You interviewed all the living uh, U.S. Amateur champions. Is that correct? That's right. I got about I, have, I got about forty-seven of the forty-eight uh, living amateurs at the time. Almost immediately after I sort of was hired to do it, uh, Harvey Ward passed away. He had been pretty sick, um, but it was it was fascinating to go up and down the line and and. Uh, Track down all these past champions, some famous, uh, some not so famous, but all have a all have a have a great story. Um, it's the ultimate. I mean, I guess there was a fair when it was a 72 hole stroke play tournament from 1965 to 72. Um, but otherwise, it's it's one of the uh, it's it's one of the great sort of marathon endurance endurance tests of all time. Uh, what I love now is it's it it is extreme. It is. It, it's extremely hard just to reach the tournament. Very, very good players uh, miss out at the local section, you know, local qualifiers these days. In a 36-hole day, if you don't shoot 500 par, you're not going. And that's it. for many golfers, many silver club golfers, especially that's sort of the, the U.S. Amateur 36-hole day where they sort of have a long shot, an outside shot, a slightly long but outside shot to go. That's like that's what I know a lot of players sort of sort of that's their major more than their club championship is a, is a chance to sort of get there. Yeah, the U S um, amateur is, is a, is a amazingly special tournament. And you know, if it wasn't for a, a, a lip out or two, and maybe a couple uppercuts by a guy named tiger, uh, you might've interviewed me on that, huh? I wish I did. <laughs> I'll tell you what I, um, one of the sort of trends I saw in the amateur was how rare it was for someone to, sort of finish runner up and then, and then make it back to the finals. And I have to, I have to admit like the fact, I think what goes under overlooked in your impressive career is that you're a, you're a semifinalist at, at Newport in 95 when you're barely, you're, I think you said you're 18 years old. I find it amazing that you were a semifinalist and then came all the way back to the finals, all the way to the, you know, sudden death of the, uh, into the finals the following year against a pretty good golfer, but each of those runs was so amazing. I'm I'm almost I love to hear from you about that the, your Newport amateur. I know everyone talks about '96, but um, that must have that historic year, hundredth anniversary, founding club, old links. Did you know what you were doing then? Well, a little bit. Yeah, I just came out of high school and. It was uh, the golf course, and this is why I, I played Buddy Marucci in the semifinals, and, and this was kind of one of those situations where uh, the golf course was totally baked out, so you know, the guys hitting it who hit it farther back then didn't really have that much of an advantage. Uh, you know, a Buddy Marucci was hitting it over 300 yards back then with the, with the older equipment, so uh, it, it, definitely, uh, it definitely lent to um anybody could win that week and and you know it's pretty much a, a an amazing testament to tiger woods and how uh he he got to win that event really over a few different golf courses and a few different styles and uh you know that that venue really didn't favor him necessarily uh 
uh, although you couldn't uh, you, you couldn't not favor him in an event. Uh, I don't think he's he's just uh, he, he's just you know maybe the greatest player of our of our generation for sure. And but um, yeah, the, the U.S. Amateur is is an amazingly special event to get that far in the matches and and to you know to make key putts when you had to and and I mean it's just really no better of a feeling and and on top of it you've got TV uh live TV uh following you you've got thousands of people out there watching uh it's uh you know it's a really a a unique atmosphere now real quick let's you know just talk about uh you know being the men's golf coach at Yale and and you know you're connected you're connected uh, to the competitive game, you know, to this to this second, really. What uh, what's it like coaching an Ivy League school like Yale? I love it. Um, I I sort of consider myself the temporary steward of a hundred and twenty two year old program. Um, you know, it never feels never feels like a job. Um, in that regard, I um, as a, I feel like I'm just looking after my own pro my old program and um, in the Ivy league, especially it, it really is amateur athletics. Um, the kids don't get any ac- athletic scholarships to play. So, you know, throughout the conference and there's a lot of, there's a lot of division one athletes, division one, two and three athletes who, who um, pay tuition, but that changes the dynamic, like to, to play, to play for uh, an Ivy league school is, is to is to um is to pay seventy thousand dollars for the opportunity, so that's what I what I do love about it is that um you don't get a lot of attention, um we definitely you know we're not going to be on Sports Center, but the kids play their hearts out, um you know they're they're practicing all the time. Here we are in the winter in New Haven. They're they're in the indoor facility doing workouts, um. You know, everything is sort of gearing up for the critical sort of three-week run in April during during the uh, end of the semester when they're expected to sort of play their best golf. And so I love that I never have to motivate them. They all want to start. They all want to be in the starting five. Um, you know, it's one thing to play really well for yourself in the summer and you're happy and your parents are happy, but um, team golf – uh, representing your school, um, there's nothing more beautiful than a player who's who is the one who drags the team across the finish line. That's uh, that's just way more gratifying. In that instance to celebrate a win with your teammates like that. Now that's 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 really cool. And look, over the course of our podcast, as we do throughout the year, that we'll uh, we'll bring all of our listeners out there. Uh, we, we're really. Uh, really excited to have you on board. We're going to have a great, uh, a great banter as we go through the year. Really, in our goal with this, with this podcast, is really just to connect people with the amateur game. And and we certainly couldn't do it, uh, do this podcast without the help of the Silver Club Golfing Society. You know, you can find us on on social media at Silver Club Golf on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook. We're on the web at SilverClubGolfingSociety.com. Uh, you're going to be able to uh, just really feel like you're connected with the game. We've got, uh, like I said, we've got Matt Parziali coming up here in a second. And, uh, you know, we're going to have some some great, great guests throughout the year, really wanting just to connect our listeners to the amateur game and uh, really looking forward to starting this off the right way in our inaugural Silver Club podcast uh, with you, Colin. And, and uh, you know, I know, I know your coaching duties will, uh, you know, will allow you to, to be a part of this thing as, uh, as you're able. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're definitely honored with your uh, guidance and your knowledge of this great game and history. And uh, we just really appreciate, uh, appreciate you being here. Steve, my pleasure, man. I'm look. I'm looking forward to it. I was, we were just saying, like, I think it'll be fun to cover sort of events otherwise off sort of radar, like Hockter or the um, the Arcola Cup, or and I know I know like the Travis will get sort of often will get a little link, but it'd be great to interview those winners, hear their story. I'm I'll be interested. Like that is a it's a it's a fun category. It's it's a it's a, it's a relatable category. The guy that. Uh, who takes a few days off from work? They can't, you know, they can't stop themselves from from competing. That's and uh, where there isn't sort of uh, there, there obviously isn't 
a giant purse at the end of the uh, at the end of the event. So I it, it, this is going to be exciting. I look, I'm looking forward to. It. Yeah, we're even going to have. Uh... We'll we'll hopefully have some of the the best golf instructors in the game. Maybe provide their uh, their ideas on where the amateur game is going. Maybe a, even a few swing tips for our listeners out there. So uh, we've got it. We've got some cool uh, cool things in the in the works. And uh, we thank you uh, for uh, being a part of this. And you know we're, I'm looking forward to you know, this whole year. And uh, so without further ado, let's get to our first guest today, our 2017 United States mid-amateur champion, Mr. Matt Parziali. All right. Uh, it's really an exciting day here at the Silver Club podcast because we have one of the top amateurs in the game of golf, one that has played on some of the greatest courses on the planet in some of the biggest tournaments in the world of golf. Uh, I'd like to welcome 31-year-old Brockton, Massachusetts native Matt Parziali to the Silver Club podcast today. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me, Steve. Really, really appreciate you spending a little time with us. Uh, before we get going, I just want to, if, if our listeners out there don't already know about you, you've been a lot of places this year, but uh, just want to rattle off a few of your uh, most recent accomplishments. Our Silver Club media partner, incidentally, Global Golf Post, named you the Player of the Year very recently, and AmateurGolf.com recognized you as the Mid-Amateur of the Year. Uh, you, what puts you on the map was the 2017 U.S. Mid-Amateur, where you won eight and six, was the third largest win in Mid-Amateur history, uh, pre- pretty awesome accomplishment. Uh, and then, you know, that led you to the, the Masters this year, as well as the U.S. Open, where you were tied to the low amateur with uh, Louis Gagne. And so uh, we, you've, you've got a lot, of, uh, a lot of things going on this year. Yeah, it was an incredible year. Um, and looking back at the 2017 Mid-Am, I was playing really well that whole year. And I think it started where um, the Mass Am that year was the tournament that was kind of frustrating me. That's a match play event as well. And looking back at that event, I was able to win that week and have some success in match play. And I gave a lot of my success at the, the Mid-Am later on that fall. It, it started back in July uh, being able to win our state Am. Yeah, you, uh, you you certainly you have to build up to something like that, certainly. But, you know, looking at some of the things that you've 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 done out there and, uh, you know, you've been in a lot of a lot of media out there and everybody says you are such a nice guy. I mean, the best players in the world, Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, they are on record saying Matt Parziali is such a nice guy. Where where do you get that from? You know, I don't know. I just- I just love to compete. I love to be around those guys. I just have so much fun doing it. Um, I mean, I don't know. I just, I think it's just the way I was brought up, you know, and uh, give uh, credit to my parents. Um, I don't try to be nice. It's just who I am. Well, you're true to yourself. Now, I'm, I'm always interested more in where people came from and why their DNA is what it is. I mean, going all the way, and we'll make a Boston connection uh, from Francis Wiemet, you know, from his caddy days, you know, winning the U.S. Open uh, in dramatic fashion to a guy like Seve Ballesteros growing up and learning the game with sticks and rocks on the beaches of Spain. How did your upbringing lead you to where you are today? I mean, like, what characteristics do you you think your your parents really instilled in you to form the character that you have i think it was just uh work ethic um and it's not that my dad ever told me i just from watching him he never stopped he uh and he's a firefighter just like just like me um but not even at the fire station at home he's always doing something never stopped always trying to improve the house and um i look at that as um not that I thought of it at the time, but I think that was just kind of what I saw growing up. And then also, um, I give a lot of credit to the people I admired, Tom Brady and Tiger Woods. Um, I was 10, 11 years old when those two started winning everything. And um, to see that they always wanted to get better, always improve, always about the process. Not that I knew at the time, but just I was mesmerized watching them. I think you kind of pick up on some of those characteristics. Now, looking at some of the things that you've done in competition, uh, you know, just generally speaking, before we kind of move on to some of the, the great things you've done this year, uh, what up to the course of this year or through this year, 
is there a, a best shot in competition that you you remember that really sticks out with you that uh, you know maybe maybe propelled you further? This could be maybe even in junior golf, or it could be could have happened this year. You know, we just talked about this at the Walker Cup practice session. Everyone was going around with their best shot. Um, the, like I said, then there's a lot that goes into having this opportunity and. Every shot at the U.S. Mid-Am in 2017 had to be the most important shot of my life because it changed my life. But the coolest shot or coolest putt it was was the last hole on Friday at Shinnecock where I was able to make a 25-footer to guarantee myself to make the cut. And this is when I was playing pretty poorly in the morning. Uh, I'm sorry, on the front nine. And then um, I was able to play the last few holes pretty well, other than 17 where I put myself in a bad spot by making a horrible bogey. But to birdie 18 and guarantee myself to make the cut, and obviously it was Father's Day, and my dad was caddying for me. So you don't think about it in the moment, but now looking back, that was definitely the coolest shot, but I wouldn't say the most important. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, pretty cool shot to, uh, yeah, to, uh, yeah, to be able to play on father's day and, uh, we'll get to the U S open stuff here in a moment. And, uh, uh, let's, let's talk about, you know, the, the mid amateur, the, the mid amateur 2017. And we won't, you know, you've probably talked about this a million times and we won't harp on too many things, but you know, that event really puts you on the radar of golfers, uh, everywhere. Uh, you know, what, what was interesting to me though, as I, as I look back and kind of saw what you how you navigated the whole the whole event um the your quarterfinal match was pivotal uh you were five down with eight holes to play and take us through what happened you starting on that uh, that 11th hole and you're five down and you know you're you're gonna pack your bags and you're gonna go home you know what i'm always interested to know what people's self-talk is what did you tell yourself at that moment so usually when I've been in that situation, you're thinking about your flight home that night, you're going to work the next day, uh, the tournament's over. But for some reason, this day, I mean, uh, Brad just played really good golf in the front nine. I wasn't even playing that poorly. He was probably four or five under, uh, made a bunch of putts, hit a lot of good shots. So on the, I made, I made a six footer on the ninth hole to stay four down at the turn. And on the 10th tee, I just said, let's just play the best nine, nine holes of your life and see what happens. Well, Brad hit it the two feet, and I was five down. So at that point, though, the, the marshal, the thoughts weren't going through my head of going home. I was just trying to hit good shots. But the marshal, uh, the uh, official there, the USJ official, said he announced the match, Tilly, five up with eight to go. And for some reason, when he said eight to go, I was like, well, I have eight holes here. Let's just try to hit some good shots. And I was fortunate enough to birdie the next three holes. Mm -hmm. And I was right back in it, not even close to being have, have a chance to put them away or anything like that, but I knew I had a chance to get it back to to a match down the stretch. And then on, on the 15th hole, um, Brad hit a pretty poor shot, his worst shot of the day, I would say. And I didn't know I was going to win, but I knew I had a chance then. And I was able to win that hole and then finally go to extra holes and uh, win on the 20th hole. But that was, but looking back, it was, I didn't have that, all right, we're going home, we're doing all that. But it's easy to say you can say that to yourself. But for some, for some reason this time, I really believed that I had a chance that whole time. And then obviously that led you to the finals where you came out of the blocks firing, uh, shooting seven under par 63, essentially, if it was a stroke play uh, competition in that morning, 18 of the 36 hole match. And you uh, essentially cruised to victory. Did you did you feel like it was a, a, a walk in the park? Not at all. Um, that whole week was difficult. It's the longest week I ever had. We had a rain delay in there, so we were there an extra day. And um, I actually had to work the next day. So I was actually worried about how I was going to get home and get to the fire station. So there was a lot going on. Um, I was able to make it back. Um, but no, not at one point did I feel comfortable. I remember Josh saying to me, walking up the hole where I had one on, and I was dormy. And he said, I gave it my best. And at that time, I was like, I didn't even think it was over, even though I was seven up with seven to go. Um, and I think that's that's the reason why I was able to win that week. I was in the moment the whole time. I was in the process. I wasn't worried about the result. And I know it's easy to say, but it truly was. That was the whole key to that week. 
Cool. Yeah. You don't, you don't get out of your, uh, out of your process. And that's, uh, I, I think that that can help any, any competitor out there, uh, you know, you, you, you're process oriented. I think that's awesome. Now, uh, you know, looking at where you grew up, Brockton, Massachusetts, where you still live, uh, you know, you, legendary boxers like Marvin Hagler and Rocky Marciano, they're from your hometown. there. really tough guys, if you will. Do you see yourself as a tough guy on the course? Uh, I'd say mentally tough. I'm not going to beat anyone up, but um, mentally tough. Yeah, that's and that's I bring that back to Tiger Woods and Tom Brady, um, two of the most mentally tough athletes we've probably ever seen. And when it mattered the most, they've really never failed. Um, and believe me, I've failed and I've made mistakes, but um, I never get down. I always wake up the next morning, try to get better. Even when you miss a short putt to win or make a cut or anything, I've never really been discouraged. I'm always, all right, let's just got to get better for the next one. Um, but yeah, Rocky and Marvin, uh, so many stories growing up, um, that that's the pride of Brockton. My grandmother, my great grandmother used to go to Rocky's house and cover up the TVs and radios when Rocky would fight. So, um, his mom wouldn't watch. So our families were close back in the day. Um, so yeah, that's a big part of Brockton's history. Wow. That's uh, that is a cool, cool story. Now, you know, talking about Brockton, we all know you as Matt, the firefighter, and you followed in your father's footsteps, uh, right? As a, as a fireman. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I, after I started playing professional golf, I saw my dad's career. He loved it. And I'd been around the guys a bunch growing up and, um, he, he never missed a hockey game, a baseball game, a golf tournament. So I figured it was a, probably a pretty good schedule for me to be able to play competitive golf. And I was lucky enough to get on the job. Um, and it's just been such a fun ride. I work with a great group of guys. Um, we've been in some crazy situations together and it's, it usually turns out pretty fun. So, um, yeah, it's been, a been the last five years have been incredible. Yeah. Now, now, I mean, I, I did some research and, and I heard you say something about your, that fire station was the seventh, seventh busiest in the whole entire country. Uh, tell me about some of your, you know, maybe one of your craziest firefighting stories out there. Like what, what is one of those moments, uh, uh, paint the picture for us. Yeah. The station we're at is extremely busy. The ladder that I'm on is the seventh busiest. And then the squad it's called squad a, uh, is the busiest heavy rescue in the country. So we're going nonstop. Um, ladder one was a truck that my dad was a captain on for, I think about 10 years. And, you know, I don't really talk about too many stories, but one of the coolest uh, stories I have is I was working overtime in my dad's group because they don't put family members. They don't assign them to the same group. If something bad happens, it won't affect my family twice. But I was working overtime. I don't even know if he knew I was working that night. I was at a different station. And we got a fire. And the truck I was on, we were first in. And it was in the middle of the winter where we, I think we had seven feet of snow in three weeks. So the water was tough to find. The hydrants were covered with snow. And it wasn't a big fire. It wasn't a bad fire. But um, he was on the second do company. And we had a blast together. Being able to fight a fire with him before he retired. Um, he probably says the best moment in his life was the U.S. Mid-Am or the U.S. Open, but that was probably the, the best of mine, being able to see him do what he did for 32 years. And uh, there's probably no one better, better, than what he does, better than him at what he does. Wow, that's uh, that wonderful. Uh, wow, what a story. What a story. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that, is, that is pretty cool and pretty interesting. Uh, I mean, the, the adrenaline rush of of getting a call to a fire or to an accident or when you get called you know how does that feeling uh, adrenaline wise compared to the feeling you get on the first tee uh, how do you handle things in your mind do you do it uh, similarly differently how do you handle it i actually don't think it could be any different where um you don't really know until you get on scene what you have with the call it, it could be a house fire and people just see steam coming off a roof and it's really not a house fire. But when you get there, you know, it's a fire. Yeah. Your adrenaline it's uh, it's through the roof and you can see it in all the guys you're with. Um, and that's the fun part. We train so much together and we live together essentially. And to be able to do that with some of your closest friends and people you work with, it's, it's the, it's the biggest rush I'll probably ever have. Then you compare that to golf where yeah, first tee is the normal first tee jitters, and you really don't get the adrenaline until you get a chance to win. Um, so it's just more of a buildup when at the at the fire scene, it's right from the go, 
you have to do your job, you have to do it quickly and you have to do it correctly. Um, and it's fun to be able to do it with sometimes 40 other guys on scene that are all trying to do the same thing. Yeah, you talk about family a little bit, uh, you know, and your father. And But we know behind every great man and champion is a great woman. Uh, your wife, Allison, was uh, uh, reportedly uh, pretty good with you moving up your wedding date this past August. You're a newlywed. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, oh, but, and you, you were able to, uh, you know, she was, she was agreeable to move up your wedding a few weeks as not to coincide with the U.S. Amateur at Pebble Beach. Tell us what, how that conversation went. And uh, I, I don't think it would go great with my wife, but uh, how did it go with yours? So I have to go back to two years prior when we got engaged and she picked the wedding date, which was 8-18-18. So um, just eight one eight one eight, And so I look and I know USM is in in August. And of course, it was in the semis. If I, if I made to the semis or quarters, it would have conflicted. So in my head, I'm thinking, all right, I'm just going to go and try and qualify. If I go play, play really well that week, I'm just not going to get married. And so that was the guy talking. And then um, luckily I was exempt and we could talk about it before. And we actually had the conversation pretty quickly after I'd won the U.S. Mid-Am. Because, you know, you got to plan everything. We, have the, we had the venue. We had the band. We had everything scheduled for August 18th. And within a week after the U.S. Mid-Am, we had it changed to August 3rd. And she was, um, she was incredible. Uh, I mean, I don't think she was happy. But she never told me that she wasn't. So um, everything worked out. And I think it actually rained on August 18th in Buffalo. So I think it worked out best for everyone. <laughs> Certainly <laughs> better than having a wedding in Buffalo in the uh, in the wintertime, for sure. But uh, absolutely <laughs> pretty cool now. But let's discuss some of your big experiences that were afforded to you by your big mid-amateur win. Uh, let's let's just go through the masters a little bit the masters uh and uh, you you've said a lot about the masters over the time over the course of the year and but what what's really cool and it, it really happens about this time of year is you get you get an invitation in the mail and the funniest thing on that invitation is that it says rsvp how, how quickly did you rsvp for the masters you know the funny thing is so we spend christmas in buffalo and I got home from South Beach Am on, I think it was December 22nd. And the mail was already inside. And you kind of know it's coming around Christmas. And I'm like, oh, man, we're going to leave the next day. And there's going to be no invitation. I'm going to have to wait till after the new year to get back. It's going to snow. It's going to rain. It's going to get ruined. All these thoughts going through my head. And for some reason, the car is packed. The dogs are in the car. And I walk outside. And our mailbox is right outside our door. I look in. And Allison forgot to bring one piece of mail inside the day before. And that was the invitation that was going to sit there for another six days. So luckily, I grabbed it. I actually did not open it because we had a seven-hour drive. I actually opened it the next morning uh, on Christmas Eve. That was the 24th. And I RSVP'd as soon as I got back to Brockton. So there was no <laughs> no waste of time in that in that situation. Wow. Wow, you almost you almost didn't get the invitation. Wow. That's yeah. uh, very interesting. Very interesting. Now now during the week, did you did you stay in the crow's nest during the week? I did. I stayed after the Amber dinner on Monday night. Um, and there were four of us up there and everyone's asked what it was like and it was awesome a great experience we watched the national championship basketball game that night uh the four of us up there and but i attribute a lot to sleeping in a fire station where you sleep with a bunch of other guys in the same room so <laughs> that sounds that sounds really cool you are the envy of most uh, most golfers out there not not many people get to get to spend the night on the hallowed grounds of augusta national and uh just quickly talk about your you had some pretty cool practice rounds with uh with tiger and rory and freddie and you know talk about a little bit about how that went and you know maybe some of the things you picked up along the way from watching the these greats of the game yeah, all those guys you just mentioned were just incredible to be around, incredible to meet, talk to. Forget the golf. They're just great guys, and they love to compete just like all of us that play the game for that reason. And you saw that in all of them. Um, the biggest takeaway I have is how far Rory actually hit the ball because I got one on 11, and I hit, it, I hit it pretty well, and he was at least 30, 35 by me, and that was – it was impressive. Um 
maybe I got a soft bounce. I don't know. I'm trying to in my I'm trying to rationalize it, but it was uh, pretty impressive the thing he could do with the driver. Um, and then the control Tiger has with his irons. I've said it forever that Tiger's the best iron player we've ever seen. Um, obviously, he makes putts and chips it great, um, but it really is the irons and just such control with every shot he hits. I remember we were standing on the eighth green. Freddie and I were standing in the back right corner where the pin might might have been one of the days. And Ty going back to where you'd have to lay up if you hit a poor drive, like off to the right, if you try to hit it all the way up there. And we're probably standing six or seven feet apart. And I'd actually say maybe even closer. And a ball flies in head high and lands right right behind us. And Freddie looks back and he threw his arms up. And um, so then we go back to our conversation. And then another one comes in. And this time... Freddie doesn't even look. He just looks at me, and he goes, this guy. And uh, and then he did it a third time, and all three were right in between our heads, and they landed right in the same spot. And that's just control that he know he, he – that's why he can stuff it when no one else does. And um, that was a pretty cool experience to see there too. Wow, that's uh, – yeah, pretty pretty dialed in uh, to say the least. That's why he's uh... – yeah, he, he. That's why he's arguably the greatest of all time. Probably, uh, probably will pass Sam Snead in the uh, PGA Tour records. Uh, getting to Jack may be uh, maybe difficult, but you never know. I think the majors line up uh, pretty well for Tiger this year. Uh, speaking about majors, uh, then you moved on. You played in the U.S. Open. Uh, we we touched on that briefly a little bit before, but you know you were the low amateur at the U.S. Open, uh, Shinnecock Hills, Long Island, uh, one of the greatest golf courses there there is out there in the world why do you think you played so well there what was it about the golf course that uh, that fit you so well so i go back to the masters week and unfortunately i wasn't able to play a lot of tournament golf before the masters i did as much as i could and i actually felt really good out there i just didn't i was just a little lost a few shots here and there but then just after the masters i went and i played three straight weeks in florida went to the terracotta the concession cup and then the coleman and then by the time I got home, I was right into the stuff around here. So I was actually playing a lot of competitive golf, and I was able to win the two tournaments I played in before going to Shinnecock. And Shinnecock sets up better for me. The only reason I say that is because you don't need the knowledge you need around Augusta. And it's just straightforward. It's the hardest course I've probably I've ever played, but it's just straightforward, difficult. If you hit a good shot, you're fine. If you hit a poor shot, you got to find a way out. That being said, that's a lot of the way I play amateur golf, where you don't need to go shoot 18, 19, 20 under in a four-day event to have success. And so make pars, avoid the big numbers. Um, not that I said that before, but it's just kind of the way I play golf. And um, I did that for the most part. I think I only made three doubles, um, and I made a bunch of pars, which was obviously a, um, a big part of my success. And the fescue is so difficult. I think I was only in the long stuff three or four times, which um, really saved a bunch of shots there too. The golf course is, is pretty amazing. I actually I did a little work for for Fox Sports out there, and uh, I saw the course all four days. And it's amazing how that golf course changed uh, from Saturday morning to Saturday afternoon when the USGA quote unquote lost the golf course. But uh, I think just the, the the terrain and the and the the soils out there and the winds and uh, it's it's a it's pretty amazing how that golf course can change, can it? Yeah, I actually played right around 11 o'clock on, on Saturday, maybe a little before, maybe a little after. The front nine, it was you could tell it was more difficult, but it really didn't uh, play that much different. But you could tell it was going to, was gonna, the scores were going to be higher. And I was playing really well. I think I was one over that day through 15. And I, I played that 15th, 14th, 13th, 12th hole where it really started to change. The greens were turning purple. Um, I played them so well. Um, I hit all those greens, I think, and I just wasn't aggressive with the putts because they could have gotten to some bad spots. And then on 16, it got me. I had a 35-foot putt right up the hill, and I hit it four feet by. I missed it coming back. I four-putted for double. Ah. So it definitely changed, but that was on me. I don't put that on the USG. I don't put that on the course. Um, that's a 35-footer right up the hill, and you can't hit it four feet by, <laughs> especially with that pin. So I don't think I – made too many mistakes that day um other than just one mental lapse right there 
That's pretty cool. And you said in an interview uh, surrounding that tournament that your iron play at Augusta wasn't as strong as you wanted it to be, but you rectified it with the good play at the U.S. Open. What what sort of thing did you find? Was it was it a technical thought? Was it a uh, just a, a course management thought? What was it that you found between April and June to to kind of get your game in order? And like you said, you won a few events uh, leading into the U.S. Open. Well, I ordered a new set of irons Saturday after the Masters. (laughs) (laughs) There's one way to do it. Yeah, get it. You know, what I noticed is that all those guys hit it so high. And so I was using um, a mixed set of Titleist MBs for the the wedge, 9, 8, 7, 6. And then I had CBs for the 3, 4, and 5. And so I realized, I was like, I hit it so low. um, And I just wasn't holding greens or running away. So I ordered a set of AP2s the next literally Saturday after the masters <laughs> I got him for the terracotta down in Naples and that's a that's a place with this firm fast green it's windy and I, I I've been playing that probably five or six years and I had my best finish I think I was I don't know top 20 maybe 15th or whatever it was and it was because I could just hit the ball high the wind wouldn't affect it as much and it was landing softly so I'm not saying that's the whole reason why, but I think I had more confidence with the AP2s to hit shots that wouldn't run away and get away from me. And I think I was trying to be too precise with my old irons. So um, nothing technical. It was just more of um, trying to get the right equipment that it would fit. Yeah, never never blame the operator. It's always the uh, it's always the equipment. I gotta, you got to get some new equipment and uh, <laughs> exactly. throw that. It's you know it's a nice excuse to uh, you know to, to call your to call your rep up and uh, get some shiny new clubs in the bag. And uh, looks like you you that paid off pretty well. Um, so so you know without beating a dead horse there at the USO, you obviously you played great uh, on Father's Day. Uh, you were able to give your father a pretty cool gift and uh, and and be on the uh, to be on the bag and to you know to carry it obviously the whole entire event but to, to play golf on Father's Day what what's it like to play in the U.S. Open with your father right there walking side by side? Yeah, like I said, we didn't think about it at all because we're so into what we do. We've been doing this a long time together. It's not just like I won the mid-am and my dad was going to caddy for me. He's been caddying for me for. I, all the way back to high school. It's just the same thing over and over again. We He knows exactly what to say, when not to say it. Um, so the funny thing is, I'm paired with Steve Stricker on on Sunday, and we're walking off the first tee, and Steve says, Happy Father's Day. And I realized I hadn't even said it that morning to him yet. So um, that was the first time I said it, uh, just because we're, we're so into the process, and I don't even think he realized it either. Um but yeah, looking back now, one of the coolest things I'll, both of us will probably ever experience. Very special. Well, well, it's a sign of your play. You may uh, you may get to do it a few more times before it's all said and done. And uh, I certainly wish you well in that. Uh, let's shift gears just a little bit to uh, to some of the amateur events that you've played in this year, and you know some of the victories, and maybe some of the things you know that went into some of those victories. Uh, uh, you you won a uh, for the second time this year. You won a, a big event in Massachusetts called the Hornblower. You won with a a ten footer for par in a playoff now uh, just for our listeners out there who are trying to gather a few nuggets for their own game how do you summon the courage to make a putt when you have to make it because everybody out there they've got a putt for something whether it's a five dollar nasa on the 18th hole or a club championship how do you win a big event like that and hold a key putt when you absolutely have to in a playoff that's a funny story you ask about this one because that playoff, I was a little behind. Uh, I think I made one bogey and 17 pars the first day. No birdies, just it was fine golf. And then the second day, I, think I made two birdies and one bogey, so I shot even par. It's a difficult golf course. It's always difficult conditions. Green's a lot like Shinnecock where um, they're firm, fast, a lot of slope. So in the playoff, I, I played the hole from, from tee to green, fine. I hit driver and I hit a wedge up there to let's say 25 feet it wasn't that good of a wedge but it was it was fine because he had to lay up and he had a hundred yard shot and he probably hit it to nine feet and then I hit the 25 for a 10 feet by so uh, but the greens are kind of it was just on a bad spot it was a poor wedge and I was so happy to putt first there Uh, I love putting first no matter how far away just you if you're in 
if you're in first, most likely you're going to win is kind of the, the way I said. So when I was able to putt first there and make it, um, he was he missed it. But I don't really put much pressure on the last putt. It's There's so much that goes into a round. that so much goes into a tournament. I know it's cliche, but I try to approach it the same way as I do on the on the first hole. And that is just to put a good roll on it, um, hit a solid putt. And if you're lucky enough to read it right, it's going to go in. Um, and I kind of approach every putt like that. I never put more pressure on one or the other. And I go back to that putt at, um, at, Chin- at Chinnacock on 18. My speed was perfect that day. And so as soon as I saw it was online, I knew it was going in. Um, but there was no more pressure. I was like, oh, my God, this is to make the cut for the U.S. Open. I just, once I got a good roll on it, I knew it was going to go in. Uh, you, you simplify the process. I think that's probably the best lesson that you can you can teach anybody. You know, going into amateur golf overall, um, you know, the, the camaraderie in golf is is so is so important. It really makes golf what it is. You know, what what are who are some of the buddies that you travel with in your in your amateur circus that you've played, and you know, who might you play some practice rounds with, and or maybe go have a beer at night with, or uh, who are some of those guys? So my closest friend, he's from uh, Massachusetts, Massachusetts as well. His name's Herbie Akins. He was a, he was in my wedding party, and he's just starting to play in um, the national events. Well, I shouldn't say that. He's been playing in um, some of them, but he's starting to play in all of them. So he's my closest friend out there. We travel everywhere together. We're going to Florida tomorrow for the um, the senior junior down at Die Preserve. Um, but people that I've met since I've started playing the Coleman, the Crump, the Travis, um, my closest friend, I'd say Scott Harvey. We just, we see it the same way. We approach life the same way. Um, we're partnered together in the concession cup and we had a blast together. Um, but there's just so many great guys. And the coolest part about it is for us is we see these guys maybe seven, eight times a year. And you really get to learn their families, what they're doing for vacation, um, and you get to learn about their lives. And that's the they're probably going to be the closest friends I have from now until hopefully I never stop playing, but um, for the rest of my life. Yeah, we can play this game for a long time. That's uh, that, that's that's neat that you're able to you know get to know these guys, and uh, it's it's really what makes golf what it is. I I think and. Uh, and it's it's kind of the cool thing about amateur golf that we're going to get to in just one moment. But, uh, you know, just having played in two majors for you, making the cut in the U.S. Open, uh, you know, to my count this year, you've had five top 10 finishes, two runner ups, uh, top 15 finishes at the Northeast, the Porter Cup. You even traveled down to South America, uh, finished tied for seventh in the South American amateur down there. You know, by my account and by all accounts, you've had one heck of a year and played some of your you know one of your biggest schedules you've ever played yet you were ranked 182nd in the world amateur golf ranking and when i look at that something just doesn't add up to me it, it, in a way do you feel like the mid am is at a disadvantage when it comes to climbing climbing the ladder of amateur golf and the world golf rankings as compared to maybe some of the college guys who are playing in all these uh, college events all the time and maybe get some higher uh, ranking points that way? So I think, yes, we're at a disadvantage. But the only reason I ever cared about the world ranking was to be in the top 400 so I wouldn't have to qualify for the U.S. Mid-Am. Other than that, I really don't care. I play golf to play in every event I can possible, whether it be a D field or an A field. If I can play and and it's going to be competitive and fun, I'm in. Uh, I'm not going to skip a mid-am event because it's going to hurt my world ranking. That's just not the way I approach the game. If you're playing for world ranking, you're not playing to win. Um, So, yes, it hurts us, but luckily enough, I'm exempt for the next nine years now for the U.S. mid-am, so I don't have to worry about ranking. Um, (laughs) That's that's a good part about it. Yeah, yeah, other than that, um, then I put Herbie Aikens in there, for example. He plays in all the stuff. His his ranking is probably 900, and should he be exempt for the U.S. Mid-Am every year? Probably. Um, he's one of the better Mid-Ams in the country. He's definitely in the top 50, I'd say. So um, I just think it, the ranking hurts guys like that that probably should be exempt that aren't exempt. 
we talked about some of the events you played in uh, over the course of the year. And obviously, when you play in so many events, you, you might have to decline a couple events. Are there any events out there that you, you got invitations for that you really wanted to play um, that you just you couldn't make this year that you really wanted to go to and maybe you'll, you'll go to in the, uh, you know, the upcoming years? Yeah, so the Western was a big one. I've never been invited to that before, and that was the weekend of my wedding, so I couldn't get out of that a second time. Um, and then the Santa Hannah and the Monroe. I've played the Monroe. I've never been invited to the Santa Hannah. Um, that was the same week as U.S. Open. Those are two that I would have liked to go to. And then all, and then the Thomas, which is a mid-M event out LACC that I haven't been able to make the trip for because it conflicts with the Northeast AM, and that's right in my backyard. So um, it's tough to miss that one. So I'd say those three are probably the three that I'd like to get to in the future. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it this year. Definitely the Western this year. Um, and then I actually might even try to go play the British AM this year too, so if that fits the schedule. Yeah, the Western AM is going back to uh, Point of Woods up in Benton Harbor, Michigan, uh, where they've played the the Western AM for a bunch of years. They've they've missed out for a few years there, but they're going back this year. Incidentally, it's actually one of our uh, one of our events in our Silver Club Golfing Society schedule. It's going to be at uh, it's going to be at Point of Woods this year. So, uh, really cool venue, uh, just about two hour drive around from Chicago. So, uh, good luck in getting in there and playing well. Um, oh, thank you. Um, you know, since our Silver Club Golfing Society podcast really revolves around amateur golf and the, the love of golf's traditions and history, let's just talk quickly about your feelings on the amateur game and, and how you feel it compares to your journey that you briefly took on the professional level. Um, talk about really the maybe the first competitive moment as a youngster when your juices were flowing and you felt the rush of the game and, and you were hooked, is there kind of uh, is there a moment that really sticks out to you as, as when you got hooked to the game? I think I got hooked before I started playing tournaments, but I still remember the first tee shot I've ever hit in competitive golf. It was in the Brockton Junior City Open. Uh, it was at the nine-hole course, and I hit three right on the first hole because I didn't have a driver. I guess I didn't have a driver before. I didn't use a driver for four years before I won the mid-am. So I guess I didn't grow up with a driver. I really realized that. That's funny. <laughs> but I remember this steward I hit, and it was the best steward I've probably ever hit in my life to this day. And I think I chunked the next wedge or whatever. But um, th those are the things that are ingrained in you because you love this game and love to compete and love to be in that environment. Um, yeah, so I think absolutely it, you, you remember all those moments. What was it really about the game in that early stages that really – that really hooked you, that really got you in. Um, you know, I'm sure you played other sports. What kind of what kind of led you through to the game of golf? So yeah, I played I played everything growing up. I played hockey, I played baseball, I even played basketball in in high school because my school didn't have a hockey or golf team, so I needed to do, I needed to do something. So the one thing about golf is sometimes you can win or lose a hockey game. You're not even on the ice. Um, or basketball or whatever you call it, every team sport. And that's the thing I love about golf. It's all on you. There's no, there's no teammates at fault. There's, I mean, sometimes it can be a fault at all those sports, but everything that you put in, you usually get out. And that's the, that's the reason why I fell in love with competing and trying to get better. Yeah. Was there a, you know, as you, as you moved on through the college ranks, uh, uh, you were at Southeastern university, I believe in uh, Lakeland, Florida, uh, for a stint there, and uh, was there a specific moment through that through your amateur game when you were coming through the college ranks and the amateur ranks back then when you told yourself that that I want to turn pro and and what was that decision like for you to to make that move? Yeah, so I remember I was actually in high school. I was watching Q School with my cousin. First time I even really knew what Q School was. I think I was probably fifteen or sixteen. I said, you know what, I want to go to Q School one day. I didn't, I didn't even know what that entailed. I didn't even know what it meant. I just, I saw these guys trying to get on PJ tour and I was, I wanted to do that. And not to say that, I mean, I was a pretty poor, uh, high school golfer. Um, I loved to compete. I played in all this stuff, but I never won anything. Maybe won a couple small things here and there, um, had some success, but nothing, nothing to write home about. 
And then I went to only reason I wanted to go to school in Florida so I could play year round and try to get as good as I possibly could and compete as much as possible. Definitely play and, more in uh, Florida than you can in Boston, right? <laughs> absolutely. And I saw that success right away. My, my, uh, I think my third tournament in college golf, I won. It wasn't a big tournament, but still winning no matter any, no matter what you're playing, winning breeds confidence. I've heard Tiger say that a hundred times. And that kind of kick-started my college career where I went from, I wouldn't say our team wasn't that that good, but there were better players than me. But I, the confidence, you, you, now you're one of the best players on the team. And I was a freshman. And um, to go through the next four years to play all those events and qualify for a USM, I never even thought, I, in high school, I wasn't that good. So I never even tried to qualify. The first time I tried to qualify was when I was in college. So I just think I've had the, it's been a big buildup. Um, it hasn't always been great from the start. So I've actually enjoyed the climb and it's still going. But when, and when you got to that, when you got to turn pro and you, you had that vision of what professional golf was like, what, what about that vision of the pro game really didn't turn out to be so? Honestly, it was nothing to do with golf. It was all about, um, lifestyle and having a career um believe me if you if you gave me a pj tour card right now i'd i'd go play there's nothing i want to do more than compete at the highest level um but you can't do that if you don't have any money um i had money to play tournaments i didn't have money to to put away to to have the the life you want to have i'd say i don't mean to sound that way but it's um it was more of a lifestyle thing than a golf thing because I've just wanted to play golf at the highest level uh, no matter what. Yeah, what, uh, what is it really about the amateur game of golf that it's hard to live without? Now, you, you've made that switch. You've got your amateur status back. Now, what, what really is it about the game of amateur golf that, that, has, you know, that has really hooked you? So the, the funny thing about that is I got my amateur status back in 2013. So I had to apply in 2012 and I didn't play any competitive golf other than maybe the mass open qualifier, which I think I probably shot 80 in. So I was playing pretty poor golf for that whole 2012 year. Just at, just at Thorny Lee, my home club here in Brockton, where I grew up just playing with friends who now had jobs in Boston, playing on the weekends. I was flipping houses with my dad because we, uh, I was still waiting to get in the fire department. So it was a year where I kind of stepped away from trying to sustain a game that could compete. It was more just like a fun year and on the weekends. And then when I got my officially got my amateur status back in May, I think it was, or June, the first tournament I went back to was the Hornblower, the one that we talked about earlier. And I was playing poor golf. It was nothing, nothing good. And I just said, no matter what, I'm just happy to be back a part of the group of guys in Massachusetts and I don't care if I ever win again. I don't care if I ever make make a cut again. I just love to compete. And sure enough, a month later, you're you're winning again. You're in contention again, and all the juices are back. Um, so it's just it's like a big cycle with golf. Where, you, and obviously, I was working at it a little more then too. So you, like I like I've always said, you put in what you get, what you get out. So right. And what what I mean along those lines, what motivates you, or maybe who motivates you every day? to get better, to, to, to just keep climbing the ladder? Uh, just me. I don't play for anyone else. I just do it for, for myself. Um, I love to have that feeling walking up to 18 with a chance to win or know you're going to win or the shot you hit on the 11th hole down the stretch. Uh, I live for those. Um, that's just what keeps me going. So when you're back at home at, at Thorny Lee, uh, you know, what does your typical Saturday morning game look like? Or what is kind of your, your normal, uh, you know, normal lead up to, to playing in an event? Uh, do you like to play more? Do you like to practice more? Kind of take us through a, a little bit of, of what that looks like for you. Yeah, so I go back to that 2012 to 2014 period where I was just getting my ass back, just starting to compete again. And the game was... We had we had so many junior golfers at Thorny Lee, and at this time, a lot still lived in the area, and we were intermediate members, so we couldn't play until 11 o'clock. And we all show up right around 9, 9.30, hit some balls, chip and putt, maybe get lunch before, um, and go play a big game, maybe 16 or 20 of us. So there was always, we're playing for something, um, and it's a big group of guys. It's not, not a tournament, but it's almost like you got to get the ball in the hole on every single hole, and you're competing. So... 
that's how Thornley was my whole life, though. From the time I joined, actually, I started working there before I joined. From the time I've been a part of the club till now, um, the competition there, no matter it's a 10 handicap or a 20 handicap, um, if they get the right amount of shots, they'll play you for whatever you want, and they love the competition. And I think that's what this, there's so much success from Thorny Lee of players that play in the state level and national level that that's the reason why is that the competition starts at a young age, and um, I've learned from the best there. Um, we have Steve Tasho, Bruce Chalice, John Hadges, John Toshka, all these guys have won state ams and some played in U.S. Opens and national stuff, and just to learn from them and watch them um, that's, that's the biggest part of my, uh, competitive success. So it sounds like maybe playing, playing outweighs practicing for you and getting out there in competition outweighs kind of beating balls on the range. Yep. The more I play, whether it's at Thorny Lane, if it's for something, I put, I put as much in to every shot there as I do in a tournament. I mean, that's maybe not quite true, but I remember playing with James Driscoll uh, when I first turned pro and it was just three of us out there at medalist and I think he had a putt for or maybe a double bogey and the we were already in the hole the two of us and he was trying to make it like it was the last part of a tournament to make the cutter to win I took a lot from that to notice like he puts everything into every shot so when it matters it's the same it's the same process over and over again no that's that, that's a that's a really good lesson and uh, and I uh uh, that that's certainly something that uh, a lot of our listeners out there can can uh, take a piece of. Uh, now, before we kind of get finished here, I want to just ask you. Got a couple more things. Uh, interestingly enough, you've made a a little bit of a career move in your life. Uh, you know, we uh, we all know you as as Matt the firefighter, and but you know maybe getting wanting to get out of the strain of fighting fires every day. Uh, tell us a little about your new career path. Yeah, so I recently started at NFP, which it's a it's a corporate benefits um, firm that I joined. We do commercial insurance, uh, healthcare, four hundred one ks, wealth management, all that stuff. Under we can do all that for businesses or individuals. Um, and the reason I got this opportunity was, I think I, I, the network that I may now have, um, and I love being a firefighter. There's I mean, so much has happened to me. I've learned so much about myself in that career that uh, it's tough to say that I might not be a firefighter anymore. So I'm still on leave. So there's still a chance I could go back. Um, and I love that I have that opportunity if I need to. But it would be it wouldn't be smart for me not to explore all the opportunities I have to see if you can find a career doing something a little less dangerous. That um, it. it Hopefully it works out, and I'm I'm enjoying learning the business. Um, I had to take some tests. It was the first time I took a test in ten years, so that was difficult to get back into doing that. But, well, we um, love tests. We love tests. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, it's exciting and just getting going. I've been four or five months now, and in in I'm trying to make the Walker Cup team, and it'd been very difficult for me to do that if I was still working at the fire department. So this allows me the flexibility to travel and do work wherever I am. So. Yeah, looking forward to it. I imagine that's a pretty physically taxing uh, profession trying to be out there and, uh, you know, just just, you know, fighting fires and going to, uh, you know, the schedule that uh, it's got to be very, very interesting. And, you know, yeah. So you had this great year in, in 2018. You played in all these majors. You did so many great things. Um, how do you really how do you top this year? What what what's kind of what's next uh, on uh, on the horizon this year and how might it differ from some of the things you did in 2018 so 2018 uh it's obviously going to be extremely hard to talk but um that's in the past i'm looking forward to go play in the junior senior on monday um and competing again i don't look back i just always try to keep in front of me even though i had so much fun it could be like oh i'd love to do that again of course i'd love to do it again you want to do the best you can no matter where you are or what you're doing but I put just as much into getting ready to go play this two-man event that I do the U.S. Open. I mean, now the U.S. Open's behind. You know, I don't mean to sound that way, but I just always look forward and try to get myself ready to compete. 
I, I think that puts you in a good frame of mind to, to go play and, to, you know, stay, you know, golfers and support psychologists out there would always say, stay in the present. And, uh, and I think, you know, maybe that's led to some of your, your match play success. And, you know, that's kind of where, you know, in the mid amateur, there's all this match play that's being played and, uh, the Western amateur, which you want to go play. It's a great match play event. What, what is it that you love about match play really that, that kind of, that has, that's gotten you going? So I actually have probably had much more success at stroke play just because we play, I'd say, 80% of the tournaments or even 85% of the tournaments are stroke play events. Um, and match play, I'd have some success and lose late or lose early. Um, it's, a different, it's a different animal. It's a different, almost a different style of golf. But I think I started doing better in winning match play events when I started to approach it like a stroke play event. And, um, that started at the Mass Am, like I said, in 2017 at the, at the state level, uh, pars are usually pretty good. And so make a bunch of pars and let them make mistakes. Not so much at the U S mid Am where you had Brad making five birdies in the first 10 holes. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit different there, but usually in amateur golf pars don't hurt you. And if they do, and someone makes a bunch of birdies, hats off to them. And that's just part of the, part of the game. Like I look back to Josh Nichols, who I played in the in the finals. I think he shot 69 and was maybe one or two under in the afternoon, and and it, the match was over on the 30th hole. And um, more likely than not, if you play someone else, it just makes a bunch of pars. He wins. So that's just the luck of the draw. I've said this a million times. You can play poorly and win, and play great and lose a match play. So you never know what's going to happen when you show up um, each morning. It's certainly kind of the beauty of it. And, and I, to, to kind of segue into that, I mean, you know, how much do you think your match play experience, you know, may factor into a possible Walker cup selection this year? Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, yeah. I'm trying not to think about that at all. I'm just, um, oh, I'm sell yourself to, to the selection committee here just for, just for a second. Right. <laughs> you know, I just, I think, um, obviously the U S mid am and, and the U.S. Open, that, that'll that help my resume. Um, I love playing team golf. Um, it'll be a really cool experience to be a part of. I know you had the, the experience, and we talked about that. And just to see everyone so excited that night, um, to tell the stories about that, and to be kind of fire all the 16 of us up to, to not that we don't, didn't need the motivation to make it, but just to see um, that could possibly be us. And... Um, like I've said this a hundred times, the rest of this time while they're trying to make their selections, I'm just going to play in as many terms as possible, and hopefully I do enough to to be in the conversation. And and recently, you know, kind of you kind of alluded to it a second ago. Recently, uh, the 16 Walker Cup hopefuls uh, were were selected uh, to go down to the West Palm Beach area. Uh, you you played a few great venues down there, uh, like the Bears Club and Seminole and MacArthur and Medalist. Uh, just talk about how that that experience was. Uh, you know, getting together with with all of those top players in the U.S. and and uh, you know getting to meet captain nathaniel crosby yeah we we were down a few weeks ago just before christmas and it was three days a lot of golf and we had an absolute blast they set up two teams um and we played alternate shot the whole way all six rounds and at first i was like oh man we're not gonna play our own ball by the end it's the only thing i wanted to do is play alternate shot we had so much fun the matches were great we played in eight sums at times where there's two matches in each group so um we were able to get to know each other, have a good time, learn about everyone that was there. And um, a lot of camaraderie was, I think, was built. And I hope out of those 16, I hope there's 10 of us that make it, but you never know who's going to play well this upcoming year. And a lot of things can change. So um, we've got a long way to go before that decision is final. Well, uh, we certainly wish you the best of luck. We're going to close things out here for our Silver Club podcast. Um, you know, I really appreciate your time today and your insight and into the competitive game, into the amateur game. Uh, I got to say, you're, you know, you're a wonderful player, but, you know, you're even more gracious to be on here with us. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough, Matt. Uh, thank you for having me, Steve. It's been, been a lot of fun.